initial focus was really on like turnkey products for marketers. So I've worked at Silicon Valley public companies and run marketing. And what happens is you have to go so fast that it's hard to recruit all the people that you need. So like, let's say that you need a simple brochure and you've got an event happening in two days and something changed product wise, you've got to find a writer, a designer, a printer. And so the initial idea of Traction Hero was let's provide the turnkey solution so that when marketers need stuff, we just get it done. And in a much more scrappy way, but effective way than a lot of agencies have worked. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. I'm your host, Matt Rouse. And today, my guest is Kate Walling. Kate, how are you? I'm great for a crazy week. Yeah, it is a crazy week. But just so that people know, we're recording this on November 6th. So it was right after the U.S. election. They're still like counting votes. This is going to air in the early part of December when Nevada will probably still be counting votes. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> There's a lot of memes going around on the Facebook right now about that. You know, it's like people dancing around singing like one, two. And they're like, this is Nevada counting the votes. All right. Let me talk about one second. Let me get your bio so people know what we're talking about today. And you are an executive marketing consultant and an entrepreneur based in Silicon Valley with more than 15 years of experience building dynamic marketing teams and crafting brand stories that attract new customers and accelerate growth. And your company is Attraction Hero. Do you want to tell me a little bit about what Attraction Hero does? Yeah. So Attraction Hero is a new startup of mine. It's an agency model. And... Our initial focus was really on like turnkey products for marketers. So I've worked at Silicon Valley public companies and run marketing. And what happens is you have to go so fast that it's hard to recruit all the people that you need. So like, let's say that you need a simple brochure and you've got an event happening in two days and something changed product wise, you've got to find a writer, a designer, a printer. And so the initial idea of Traction Hero was, Let's provide the turnkey solution so that when marketers need stuff, we just get it done. And in a much more scrappy way, but effective way than a lot of agencies have worked. Since COVID, things have changed a little bit. There have been a, a couple things that we have, are kind of building slow for Traction Hero right now. And like so many businesses, you've had to kind of step back and think about things. So we typically help mostly what we call blitzscaled tech startups. So these are startups that have taken on a huge amount of venture capital with the goal of going public quickly. And they have a very unique set of problems. We also work with tech companies that are public and their marketing teams are changing. But in general, we help technology companies, companies that are building and growing fast and have large revenue targets. And things are changing so much because a lot of these companies are switching to remote environments, of course, saying they might not go back. And we're kind of seeing what is that like for these marketing teams and how does it change what they need? One thing that we're noticing is that a lot of these companies, you know, they have to move so fast. So if they have an employee out for any period of time, there's not really time for any lag in your team. Right. So that's one area that we're really focused on. So when you say a blitz scale or like a hyper growth kind of company, what's kind of that timeline from, we started taking on venture capital to we want to IPO. Is this like 
three to five year kind of plan or is that even too long? It depends on what happens. So with COVID, we saw, and one of my clients did it, we saw some companies where the model worked really well with COVID. Like they were doing really well, but then because of COVID, all of a sudden their products in more need. And so there was an industry pickup and there started being some pretty interesting ways to IPO, which which would be they basically merged with a public shell company and went public that way. And so, you know, it's interesting because it can take longer than you think it will. It can pop up and there can be, you can have some really interesting entrepreneurs who are open to these different financial instruments. And so it can, it can change, but in general, what happens? So the, the term blitzscale is really a Reed Hoffman from LinkedIn, CEO, founder of LinkedIn's a term. Cause he, I think he really explained it the best. Like a blitzscale company is you're going to go in and from pretty much the beginning, you're wanting to build something that becomes an iconic brand. And because you're building an iconic brand, you have to scale very quickly and you have to focus on certain things. So your HR practices might not be 100%. You might outgrow some of your employees or they might outgrow you. Things like that are not perfect, but you scale and you go, you know, pedal to the metal. So you're opening new markets faster. You're launching new products faster. You've got to get a huge amount done quickly. So your marketing resources make a huge impact. Right. I like to call that either building the airplane while you're flying it or building the car while you're driving it. Yeah. Those are my kind of favorite sayings along those lines. And man, we do that all the time. But I mean, we're not, we're obviously not a hyper growth company, but when I get an idea, you know, Scott and I'll have a conversation about it and, and I'll be like, I think this is a good, good kind of direction for us to go. And he's like, okay. And like the next day I'm like, okay, we're doing this thing. Like it's already done. And that's the brilliance of startups, right? Is that we're able to do that. You it have is. the flexibility to do that. You have the flexibility to test. And there's so many great tools. I mean, these companies are funded. They have money, not huge money, but they're resourced and they're resourced to hit these goals. And so you do change things. You just go as fast as you can and you change things and pivot things as much as you need to. And you learn, you learn really quickly too, right? You also fail some. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot more failures than there are wins in, in the startup world. It's so true. And even in a team that's winning, you're going to have something, you're, you're moving so fast that something, every once in a while, something's going to hiccup, right? And your team has got to be able to move super fast to get it done, which comes back to having, you know, for marketing, the right people in the right spot, the right time, and also the right tools. So what kind of tools and stuff are the things that companies should be using for marketing when they're trying to go, when they're trying to scale really quickly and they've got the resources for it? A large one is, and this one's really hard. So typically startups, the, entre the entrepreneurs build it with a certain focus. So some people will be really product focused. Some people will be really marketing focused. In general, what a marketing team is, a marketing team needs control of certain assets to be able to move quickly. So that would be your website, your social media, any marketing channel, design resources, resources like you talk about, like email functionality that's integrate and integrations with CRM landing page kind of promotional type assets, it, whether it's lead gen for B2B or if it's promotions for B2C or both. And that can get hard with these companies because I've been in companies that have 
they always configure themselves differently, right? Because you build these companies based on talent that you really believe in. And then everyone just figures out what works best. There's not a set formula for departments. So I've been at companies where there'll be like a, an internal like creative services department, right? And like that team handles for all the different business units, some of these assets. That, can, that has challenges, right? Because are these the right resources to do the type of marketing or brand that you need? There are other companies where that sits in, in product or engineering because the product is so important and complicated. And it's funny because with those teams, you often see a very robust experience and growing product, but the marketing team is just like, give me a website builder. I just want a website builder. Like I can't change anything. I can't, you know. Yeah. A lot of times the landing pages and stuff are built as part of the software and then you need someone in engineering to change anything. Yeah, exactly. Or just, or just one of the, you know, one of your top level five web pages, you need to be able to edit them quickly. So you always see, there's always some sort of, I think every company I've worked with, almost every client, it's like, how do we resource this and how do we shift the dynamics so that it's possible for marketing to be able to move quickly? So let me ask you this, and this is kind of slightly off topic, but I, I kind of thought of it while you were talking about scaling up and staffing up. I mean, there's only a certain number of A players in any marketplace, right? And maybe there's still a lot in Silicon Valley, but I mean, there's also a ton of startups in Silicon Valley. Like I went to HustleCon and they had 2000 people in the room and they asked who had more than a million dollars of startup capital and like three quarters of the room put up their hand. That sounds right. And most of the people there are 19 years old, right? Not saying that you can't be amazing and do amazing stuff when you're 19 years old, but I'm saying that if you look across the country at, you know, maybe software engineers, there's definitely more talent further out than there is in, you know, kind of in one space. Like, I'm curious how they try and staff up on A players for all these departments uh, are they pulling talent in from outside heavily or is it, you know, are they pulling people in from other countries and stuff? And which obviously is a problem now with the H1B process, but, or is it mostly just local talent for the most part? And they're just like, we got to get the best of who's left kind of thing. This is such a good question. So let me answer the first part of your question. And so I owned an agency in Seattle before I moved down to Silicon Valley. And when I got here, I had a major frustration, which I still have, by the way, in that when I lived in Seattle for six, six and a half years, there was enormous creative talent. I mean, everywhere, raw, good, good creative talent. It's very hard to find here because if someone is a really amazing creative, they're going to get bought at a very high price, price tag quickly, right? And they might not like that job. But the cost of living is so high that it's harder to not take one of those jobs or they're going to be paid a rock star salary somewhere else. So, you know, I think in each of these tech hubs, the talent can be a little bit different. So here, like in, in Seattle, we had amazing startups. They still do doing incredible things and more. It probably weigh a lot more than when I was there. He, the difference is here. It's a little bit deeper tech. You feel you feel like a depth of I don't know how to say it. That's kind of more engineering based than. Uh huh. It's more engineering based. Like in Seattle, there's a lot more. There's some great ones out of Seattle, like Rover.com, some really good consumer creative. I mean, again, that creative talent is like so important. And then there's just a difference here. So, I mean, I live right next to Intel. So, I mean, my whole city's full of engineers. Yeah. Yeah. So, a couple things about the startup talent. When you're 
hiring for these type of roles, you do want the talent that has seen this type of level of challenge. So this much data, this much how to scale and go to all these different areas quickly. Like there's very specific challenges that are very interesting. And I think that is part of the drug of Silicon Valley is that the challenges are on such a scale that they're really, really interesting challenges. And I think they do look for that. Now, it is changing. You see most companies opening up and hiring other places. I don't know what's going to happen after COVID. I'd say, you know, you hear an enormous amount of people who are closing or subletting out their offices. And it depends on what type of organization it is. So if, so in, in B2B companies, you'll see offices open wherever there's really strong sales talent within the market. Right. So if you're ad tech, you're going to hit Los Angeles, Minneapolis, New York, Dallas, Atlanta. Right. You're going to have sales offices. Other companies get talent based on what they need. So so if they're if you're scaling and doing all these different markets, you're going to have a local team. Typically, founders will this isn't all the time, but you see it a lot. They'll have some amount of the team perform some function in the country or state that they're or city that they're from to support where they come from. You'll see that a lot, which is really pretty awesome. Or they already know people from where they're from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of reasons. And and that's not that's that's a pretty cool thing. So it really depends. You know, I think it's definitely spreading out. I think for some of your key roles, you, there may be key cities based on where other members of the team are. And time zone issues are getting to be less of a challenge. Again, depending on how customer facing what the customer experience is like, that will drive it. And I think a lot of the time zone problems generally hover around, you know, offshoring stuff. Yeah. Well, and customer interaction. Yeah. And customer interaction. I know that offshoring's problems. I mean, I had a contract once at Intel just to be the stand in between the people who are designing an application here and the people in Intel India that were making it. I was just explaining something that the designer had made to the developer, you know, to try and make the transition easier because they're frustrated because the design kept getting screwed up, right? And it was midnight meetings and, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. meetings all the time, and which is fine for me at the time. I mean, it's in my 20s, I didn't even shit. But, man, you see it. And then, like right now, my business partner, Scott's in Costa Rica, and we have staff in Costa Rica, and they're only an hour ahead of us. So the time zone's no difference, right? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, even, you know, we work with a lot of people in Canada because I'm from Canada. And, you know, again, you know, the, the, the biggest time zone difference is four hours to out east, you know, from the West Coast to the East Coast. So it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. <laughs> but I was, I, I got on this flurry of, of being on podcasts from Australia lately, which is kind of odd. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. So somebody was on my podcast from another country, right, from the UK, and they had a friend in, in New Zealand and then another friend in Australia. And now I've kind of got into this, like I'm on all these podcasts over there because I keep getting referred by people to be on these podcasts. But it's, you know, 17 hours ahead and stuff like that. So it's really hard to kind of schedule that stuff in because you're like, oh, well, you know, yeah, let's schedule it. So it's 7 a.m. my time, but it's four in the afternoon tomorrow for you, right? That's hard. That stuff gets weird. All right. So let me ask you this. Hyper growth companies, they are generally building something that is going to IPO. So it's, do you think for the most part, this is either B2B SaaS and probably like two-sided marketplaces, right? Like your 
Uber, Airbnb, that kind of thing? Or is there anything else kind of in the mix right now? Like, well, I guess maybe medical technology, but. So they either, they either IPO or, or they're looking for an acquisition. Okay. So some kind of exit within a certain amount of time. So a lot of ad tech companies typically look for some kind of acquisition or, or if you've got like some kind of MarTech or sales tech, you know, Salesforce ate a bunch of those up. They have a very aggressive M&A program. So there's some consumers. So one of my clients, Shift.com, is a great, great company. They're building a really solid brand around. And it's basically the used car marketplace online. And so you are, there, are, there are some consumer that are not marketplace. Uh, marketplaces have challenges. And, you know, there's a whole group that are, have a buy side and a sell side, and they are separate. And we're getting to be more and more of those. Because I think while as consumers, we've all enjoyed our marketplaces, sometimes you want the quality insured, right? And that's where the marketplace, you can put some of those qualifiers in there and some of the operationally you can do that. But on some things, it can be, it can be a little harder. It's like I, I did an art startup where we were focused on contemporary art, 3K or higher, right? It's kind of a weird spot for art because either you've got really high-end collectors and they're going to auction houses. But our argument was there are a lot of people who want art and have no idea how to get their hands on it. And they're comfortable spending a little more, right? And But that had to be super curated. And so we didn't want that to be a marketplace. I think that's a model. I think that's something that's really coming up for people is where they want is a more curated experiences. Yeah. And I think, you know, going from kind of the auction, like in-person auction models, especially for things like art, estate sales, collectibles, all that kind of stuff. We worked with some companies doing that before. And there's a big part of it where people want to bid so other people can see them bidding. Right. Yeah. It's actually totally a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you see that like charity auctions too, right? Charity auctions. I was about to say charity auctions enter social dynamics and wine with money and bingo. Well, it's absolutely, you gotta, you gotta ease, you gotta ease the wallets out with some wine. Mm-hmm. Charity auctions. So you gotta have that touching story behind it, right? And bring a little tear to your eye, and then and then ask the table of lawyers if they're gonna spend more money at the charity than the other table of lawyers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. So I think that that curated that curation model is coming up. I think these are smaller businesses, but there's still a huge amount of potential for them. Well, curation too, because there's so much crap on the internet. That I mean, I talk about it all the time. That you know, most of the internet's garbage, right? It just is. It's just it's loaded with crap that nobody reads, nobody wants to see, nobody cares about, right? And so curation is important because now you've got, even with Google, it's still a needle in the haystack to find usually what you want. That's pretty hard. Which is why Facebook ads are getting really effective for merchandising. Yeah, well, Facebook's having its own problems with their advertising system right now too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they've kind of tightened the screws down a bit too tight. And I've seen seven or eight people just in the last week that have had their ad accounts blocked. Why? You know, who, who aren't doing anything wrong. It's because they're false positives in the in the systems. Wow. If you sell stuff to real estate agents and, and the system thinks that you're breaking the Fair Housing Act, even though you're not, you know, selling housing, 
and get your ad account banned, right? And then you got to go through the rigmarole of appealing it. Now there's so many appeals because so many people are getting blocked and it's a real, it's a real problem. It's a real challenge on the agency side. Like when I, it is. When I was in Seattle, we were doing a huge amount of, of ads. And there was a weekend where Facebook turned on mobile ads, but there was no warning and mobile ads were more expensive. So we come in the office on Monday where all, you know, the first reports were generated waiting on our desks by like 6, 7 a.m. We're looking at budgets. The budgets are eating up. So by this mobile ad unit, we didn't even know was coming. We didn't even know the cost of it. Right. They just turned it on for you. And they just turned it on like, oh, thank you so much for letting me eat my client budget for which I need to then, you know, help the client out for that. It's not their fault. There's all kinds of stuff like that that goes on all the time. And the, I mean, the ad, ad industry in general, the technology ad industry, they treat agencies and customers terribly. Like they honestly do. They, they're terrible at them. Yeah. When you hit anything programmatic, any kind of advertising, there's this black box. They don't, it's even with direct mail, right? You're not getting, you're not saying we hit these people and we have proof that we hit these people. So here's the data, right? No, it's like, trust us, we hit them. And it's becoming more of a black box as time goes on. Yes, on all sides. Which the technology allows them to make it less of a black box as time goes on. It's true. But they want to hoard the data on their end and not show it to you because then you just have to pay the money to get access to the data that they own. So look at Google right now. They took out displaying for pay-per-click ads. They no longer give you 100% of all the searches that were made on your pay-per-click ads. Some of them they don't show anymore. And how are you supposed to optimize if you don't know what people are typing in that you don't want? You can't. Well, you can't, but it sure makes Google more money. So, hey, screw you guys. <laughs> you know, we're going to make some more money, right? It always comes across like, you know, multi-touch attribution has gotten so challenging, so hard for marketers. And it's almost like this is totally to their benefit. And instead of helping with the issue, they're like, okay, cool. Because so many, so many marketers don't have time for these programmatic solutions to sit there and be like, no, this isn't right. This doesn't line up. Like the product has to be better. And I think it's really frustrating for a lot of us. The other thing is, when is the last time you bought something on the internet and the remarketing actually got turned off? Like it almost never happens. And that is a hundred percent wasted ad money. Yeah. And that's a huge waste. Now there are a few companies who are doing it. Well, a good example is AppSumo. You know, and they're big for the startup world. You buy something from AppSumo and they come back with their, their retargeting ads like welcome to the family. And they have like a series of videos and, and kind of indoctrinate you and how the company works and stuff and where to get more resources. And those are fantastic. But, you know, I bought some stuff from some technology companies because we're an agency. We got to buy shit all the time. So I got to buy, you know, like a plug in or something, whatever for somebody. And, and we go pick it up and then I get retargeting ads for the product I already bought for the next two months. And I know that they're paying more for that than, than they, yeah. And they've lost all the products, all, all the profits gone, right? They've just spent all the profit that they could have got from me on retargeting ads for something I already bought and they're giving it all to Facebook. And then they're getting reports back that say, you know, last touch attribution. Look at all the money we made you. Right. That's exactly what's happening. It's super frustrating. Now, the other thing is Facebook has a new thing out called circumventing systems, which is say your ad account gets blocked for some reason, but you get it turned back on and then you try and run a different ad. They think that you're trying to, to circumvent the system. You're trying to beat the system by running it on a different ad account or something for the same page. And then they shut them both down. So that's a problem, too. Oh, OK. 
So all that crap is going on right now. That is a huge problem. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Yeah. So if you have a hyper growth startup and you and you want to find out what all the crap is going on with advertising right now, feel free to call me. <laughs> you could call me, Kate. We'll talk. Yeah. But so let's get off the advertising part for a second. What do you think of sites kind of like like Product Hunt and uh, stuff like that, where kind of startups can list their you know their their new startup and show how it's going, or is it more? Are you guys kind of doing kind of direct marketing just to the clients that you think are the most likely to purchase for the startup, or is there? I mean, obviously, it's going to depend a little bit on different companies, but for Product Hunt, I see as you know it's an important tool, especially for early stage. You want to get awareness out there. Of course, it's like anything. Like people think you can just throw a Kickstarter up. It's not the case. These are huge campaigns that have to be very well planned. And even a product hunt listing has to be well planned to make sure that you get the traction from it. In terms of, you know, B2B, it's very different. So you're looking at obviously lead generation, pretty complex models and scripts for marketing automation software and how that talks to your sales team. A lot of sales training too. So one of the hardest things about B2B marketing that I found is that relationship with sales, of course. And what kind of seller are you hiring? Because if you're hiring relationship-based sellers, which is sometimes important, they're less tech savvy. And so these tools, you have to take that into consideration. Where if you've got an inside sales rep that knows what they're doing, then you're in good shape. Let's go, right? So there's so much education and, and so much you have to sync with your chief revenue officer about who are we hiring? Why? What does that process look like? What are the expectations of the sales team? And how is that going to work with any marketing automation that we do? Now, if it's if it's kind of a B2B like you're talking about, is that more of kind of account-based marketing where you're saying, let's figure out who all the people and companies are that can use this thing. And then we're going to kind of determine who we think are more likely to use our, our system. And then we're going to, you know, break that up, give it to our sales staff and let them go at it kind of thing? Or is it more of, you know, the channel marketing based approach? More channel marketing. I mean, I think, I think account-based marketing is hugely important, but I think typically you've got to come in and you've got to build a foundation of tools and like getting the, the right tools. So, and as you know, finding the right marketing automation software really depends on how big is the marketing team? How big is the marketing team going to be this size? Like if I'm gonna, am I gonna move you to Marketo in the next next quarter? You're you're gonna have one person trying to hold up Marketo. That's a bad idea, right? And that happens. Well, most of the time, the the CRMs and the sales software and the automation are only good as the people who are entering the data, right? Totally it. So you've got, and then and then are we using Salesforce? So you've got to have a really good Salesforce admin, you, typically. And how are these talking? So what? That's the foundation. It's foundational work that happens. Then typically what I work on, which you talk a lot about in your podcast is like, what kind of content can we create that's of high value and that people, people want and do we gate it or do we not gate it? And I typically look at that with a PR strategy in mind. So is there, are there some sort of data insights or is there some kind of report the industry needs and can we be the ones to provide this? And and how does that? So I typically look at content like some evergreen. I also look to see, are there any industry hooks for that? That would be important for the industry. Are, is there a PR angle here? How would this content be distributed by the sales team? So I even, I like to look even like when I'm talking about content and sales teams, I like to look at like 
I'm kind of sad that I had a favorite one and they were acquired. I look at email signatures. Like, is there email signature tool? I mean, I got, you got to look at every angle that content can be touched. And then once we get that down and we understand that with this, with whoever's running the sales team. So we're going to have leads come in the website. Let's decide how these leads are handled. Are they going to an inside sales rep? Are they going to be distributed in Salesforce by territory? How's that going to, what's that going to look like? After all that is nailed down and we're in a good spot, then I think you can look at account-based marketing. Some people look at it sooner. You know, there are leaner tools out now, I'm sure, where you can look at it sooner. You know, ABM's come so far. But that's typically the stages I'm looking at because it can take a while to sync things. And you've got to have this really tight connection with sales where you're explaining to them constantly. I want to tell you all what we're building and how it's going to affect you. Well, because the last thing a sales team wants is to be bothered in the field, you know, and that's why all these new CRMs were, were built. It's like the, the, these, they've got to work for the sales team. Absolutely. What's your thought on stuff like lead scoring and net promoter score and that kind of stuff? So do you guys use that pretty often in like Salesforce and stuff like that? Like this person has contacted us and they've, you know, read six pieces of content and they've gotten this. So we're going to give them a higher score than someone who just came in to the funnel kind of thing. Yeah, we've done that before for sure. And then you kind of look at taking away points too, right? So because if someone's got a, like a their, their score is rising, but all of a sudden they they drop off, you got to slow it down. To, you got to slow that score down. So you got to think about it going up and you've got to think about it going down. I think lead scoring is great. Obviously, there are places where you're going to have little hiccups, especially in the beginning, and you got to adjust it. Right. And you got to have a really, I always try to hire the most curious digital marketers I can find. Like, just curious. <laughs> like, they go in and they start looking at stuff and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this. Let's tighten this up. You just have to tighten it up for a while to get those scores right. And you've got to be careful because you don't want to frustrate your sales team in doing that. Another another thing I've had to put in place before is what if the sales team is not responding to the leads that marketing's providing? Right. What is your mechanism there? Fire them all. Right. Is, that, <laughs> is it a notification system? So I've done things like we've done systems where you you ramp up the notification, like it goes on five days, somebody's notified, it keeps kind of escalating. People don't love that. Well, escalation system comes from the IT world, right? So uh-huh, it does. If email's down and the first person doesn't answer, then the second person doesn't answer, then it's calling the CEO to find out why nobody's answered. And you can look at that and be like, well, wait, are we hiring the right type of, or is there an alignment on like the sales team? In the market, in terms of who we're hiring and how they work together, right? Because that, that's when you're like, are, are we doing this right? Because if you're driving everybody crazy and the, your leads are escalating, but we're providing the leads and they're not closing, then we might not have the right infrastructure here. Well, sales and marketing coordination has been a problem since the beginning of separating, you know, sales and marketing, right? But there's also... Marketing and product. I think... Yeah. And yeah, obviously marketing and product too. And you have to have alignment all the way around. But I think one of the things that's super important is trying to get the story behind the company and what you're doing and, and those stories that need to be to be told to the not just the customers, but internally, I think need to be in alignment all across the company. And that's something I've seen all over the place that, you know, companies big and small have the same problem with. I think it's true. And I think that Comrel is hard. Because sometimes whoever's in that communications role 
has a hard time getting participation or people to really understand what's happening until something goes live, something goes out and then people can freak out, right? Like, wait, that wasn't thought through or I didn't realize that was this. And so I think, you know, really providing your comms role with the right amount of visibility is important because I mean, you see this on all sides. Like you want, we are reading employee activation is so important, right? Customer activation is so important. Providing a consistent message and also pulling the stories out of the organization. B2B, that's important. You want thought leaders. You, you need people talking about what you're doing, why it's different, how it stands out in the industry from different perspectives. And it can get, be hard to get people involved or figuring out how to get them involved. What I figured out is you make it as easy as possible for for them, obviously, but it can still be tricky. And I think it can be hard if they don't have a vision for where that's going and why that's important within the space. Yeah, I see a lot of companies, the only feedback that really they have a good engine for is the feedback from the customer, right? After the sale kind of thing. But there's no feedback internally of how did we solve this customer's problem to make them happy? Or how did we do something that helped promote or produce the brand further that kind of feedback is usually left to like, how do you like the new interface guys kind of thing? You know, it's not like, how did you help someone, you know, solve their problem within the company so that you can take that to the salespeople and they can use that as a story to tell their, you know, prospects. And a lot of times that gets lost. I think it's true. But, you know, I think that, you know, especially on the brand side, something that's always hard in every organization for a brand team in particular is, there's certain things that need to be siloed or what's the saying about a committee created the camel? I don't I remember exactly how it goes, but I know what you mean. It's like if you put too many people in one room and you're trying to make a significant brand change, it's not going to work. Right. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Too many cooks in the kitchen, especially on anything creative or anything out of the box and people freak out. It's a very emotional emotions pop up kind of delayed in these type projects. And that stuff is very hard and needs to be siloed and protected. Although I'll say you have to really understand early who are the key stakeholders and what are their concerns. Absolutely. And, but it's, 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 it's much harder to do than it sounds, but then you hit a certain place in, in a project like that, something big. And you're like, well, this has been siloed, but we have to start letting people understand why did we do this? What does it mean? What are, you know, and I think, you have to really step back and think about it. And of course, that's hard for these <laughs> these hyper growth companies who are moving so fast. Well, yeah. And I think especially in a B2B world and, and most SaaS products that are kind of gauged towards businesses or agencies, right? Not necessarily direct to consumer stuff as much. But I think that there there's a lack of empathy and understanding that the person that you're actually trying to make happy is your customer's customer and not just your customer. Right. And if you can explain to your customer how happy their customers are going to be that you help them do this thing, that's I mean, that's that's the goal. And that's that's what's going to, you know, drive your sales and and drive engagement and bring back, you know, the kind of stories that you can get. And then you can reuse those stories to sell more people. And, and, you know, it snowballs on itself. And that's how you get referrals. And that's how you get indoctrination and all those things that you want to have with your with your clients. Right. That's so true. And I think a lot about, you know, B2B is just what people love about B2C companies is the feel and the brand feeling. And you can totally apply that to B2B. 
Now, if it's a really, really dry thing, it can be a little bit hard, but you can do that in, especially in terms of if you're marrying some kind of brand strategy with your experience and doing something really different. That's where you can see a lot of, a lot of brand lift because people get a different, have a different, can have a, just be like, oh, this, I didn't expect this. This is an element of surprise. Yeah. And if you can sell the story internally as well, then you get buy-in from your staff and everybody's on the same mission and everybody's on the same path and uh, sure makes the journey a lot easier when everybody's going the same direction. It does, but it's hard to do. Absolutely. And you know what? That might be a good spot to kind of leave it off here. And because we can always have you come back and you can tell us when you've solved the problem. Okay. <laughs> I'll keep looking for the absolute solution. Thank you so much for being on the show today. If somebody wants to reach out to you so that they can help you help them with their Blitz Scale company, what's the best way for them to find you? Find me at my name, which is katewalling.com. And on Twitter, it's at Kate Walling. So it's W A L L I N G. Perfect, Kate. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Matt. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Now stay tuned for a preview of our next episode of Digital Marketing Masters. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.